Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to the arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you fourth week of Friday, September 18th of the year 2020. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again here on this fine program as we are joined by you fine people. And if there are any unfine people out there, we ask you to kindly pick up your stuff and take your belongings and just move along to the next podcast. Uh, We don't want you here. Only fine people are here listening to this program because we are fine people, aren't we? We sure are. And you keep saying we, and I am the other voice on this program, as I always am. This week, I'm Dennis, the man who is shocked and appalled that he has had the theme song to Too Many Cooks in his head for just about six years now. Would you like to take a moment to explain for some of our listeners who perhaps are new, perhaps not as well versed in the ways of the internet? Yeah, uh, which is what exactly is too many cooks? Well, it first, may have been lost in the past six years. Yeah, first of all, I would be surprised <laughs> if people who aren't versed in the internet are listening to this. True, too. But I guess that's, that's always a possibility. But too many cooks was a... I want to say it was an episode from a show called Infomercials that was on Adult Swim in 2014, 2015. I don't know if it's still on, but it was on at the time. And yeah, it just sort of went viral. I guess someone, you know, put it up on the internet and then all of a sudden it just went around. It was just kind of like, it's, you know, like a cheesy 80s or early 90s, like, family sitcom like a full house or a Roseanne or whatever that whatever kind of you know sitcom intro that you know what they would have had back then there was a million sitcoms that had very similar kind of intros with some kind of uplifting song that you know works the title of the show into the show kind of thing while also describing in the lyrics what the show is about yeah and you know while while all the way like you know showing b-roll of a whole family doing family type things and then doing like a one shot of one of the one of the characters doing some kind of a pose and that shows their name key of who the actor is as whatever character so too many cooks was that but it just kept going and going and there was like hundreds of characters and then it just goes off the rails and it if you've never seen it you should see it at this point i mean there's a reason why it has 19 million views on youtube it's it's I would say it's like sort of, I would say it's a cultural phenomenon, but like very minor one, but still like, it's not like a Gangnam style or something ridiculous like that, but still worth seeing. It's, it's a wink and a nod to some people. And also you'll never get the song out of your head. You absolutely won't. And it's quite the sight to behold just for how, how it goes off the rails, how many different directions it goes and how long it keeps going for. It's, it, it might sound like a very simple premise that has short legs to it, but the producer, director, writer, and people involved with it, they get as much out of this thing, out of this concept of parodying 90s sitcom intros as they can, because it goes and then keeps going and then keeps going and then goes in some absurd directions. Yeah, and it it never feels like it's... like it. It's one of those things where... It's just on the brink of you getting sick of it until it does something and you're like, oh God, what? <laughs> and then it just goes with that for a while and then it just keeps going in different directions and you're like, where is it? It gets to a point when you're literally like, where is this actually going to go next? I have no idea. 
And as it keeps going, uh, basically starts to parody other styles of TV genres and whatnot that you may have seen in the 90s or just have been on television over the past several decades as well. But there's like a recurring thread throughout. Yeah. We're not going to spoil what that thread is because you really should watch it. You should. It's only 11 minutes long and yeah. For a simple concept, it, it gets turned into a short movie. Yeah. Yeah, just keep that in mind when you see this theme song that's going on for a bit too long. And yeah. And the theme song changes. It, it does. It does. It changes to suit the mood. Yeah. Of whatever is happening on the screen. And what's happening on the screen just goes off the rails. By the end, it is completely off the rails. Yeah, it's, uh, I think off the rails is maybe putting it very lightly. Absurdist? Yeah, like, it's basically like a world that collapses in itself, I think, is sort of, but then, it, yeah, it, it does that more than once, I think, even, like, it sort of collapses in itself. It's so weird. But, yeah, worth watching. It's definitely a talking point if you've never seen it before. And six years old. It is six years old. So there's chances are someone in your group, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have some nerdy friends. You probably have some internet savvy friends. You've probably been around on the internet for a while. So you are probably going to have friends that are also in a similar way as yourself. And you're probably going to find people that know what this is. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Check it out. Uh, we'll also po uh, post a link to it on our website of the arcade show.com. And it is worth your time and just sit and go for a ride because that's what it is. It's, it's a ride. Yeah. It's a journey that you are taking on for this simple premise of uh, parodies of TV show intros and the directions they go in and the insanity that follows at times. Yeah. It's worth it. It's worth checking out. Now, the version you actually showed me was one that I did not recall seeing. I must have watched an abbreviated version previously or something that someone else had posted chopped down because there was a good five, six minutes I did not recall previously. Yeah, like, I I know that there was a couple going around, but, like, the one I was trying to link to people was, like, the official Adult Swim one because I know it was posted originally by some third-party source, and I think it was mostly complete, but then I saw the Adult Swim version posted, and it was like, no, this is totally complete. This has everything. It even has a wacky ending and all this other stuff, and that was the one I was trying to share around back when it first came out. And Yeah, when it first came out, I think people were kind of over it, but I think, you know, as people are kind of, like, coming around with Facebook memories and things, you know, that's how I kind of recame upon it. I saw it was, like, six years ago. Someone posted this on your wall, it's just like, oh, interesting. Okay, huh. And then all the memories came flooding back. Yeah. Just that part that had fallen dormant. Yeah. Wide well, awake. It's like, it's weird how sometimes that just kind of happens. Like, me and my girlfriend were watching Halt and Catch Fire. It's a show that makes pretty good use of music. Like, they have some very interesting song choices in that show. And at one point, one of the characters was listening to, you know, whatever, listening to something on headphones and someone's just like, oh, you can listen to it in the car stereo. I don't mind, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, I don't know if you'd like it. And then it's like, no, no, give me a try. Blah, whatever. Then they put it in and it's fish heads. Wow. You know, by Barnes and Barnes. Roly poly fish heads. Yeah. So like, I was the thing where I'm like, oh man, like, cause I remember that 
you know, from when I was a kid, like my parents loved that song. I thought it was funny. They had it taped for when it was aired on, on uh, Saturday night live and all that stuff. And I remember we listened to it a bunch when I was a kid and my girlfriend had no idea what that was. And, you know, they only showed a, like a 10 second clip or something in the show. So like, obviously I showed her the whole ridiculous music video, which apparently I looked at and it was, uh, it was directed and written by Bill Paxton. Like what? The, the, the whole music video was like the, the whole thing, like the whole, not the song, the song no. was written by the music, the musicians, but Bill Paxton directed the music video. I was like, Oh, interesting. Bizarre. Yeah. But yeah. So <laughs> it's, I guess another thing where it's like, here you go. This song's been in my head for over 30 years. It can now be in your head for the next 30 years. And mine for the rest of my life, probably. Yes. It's just, it's one of those weird things where it's like, nah, now that's in my head too. Great. <laughs> Here we go. And it's going to stay there until something else comes along to take its place. I don't, but I don't know. It's, it's weird. There's dumb things like that that I can remember with incredible clarity. Like, I'm going to remember, you know, it takes a lot to make us do Dash of love and laughter too. It's just like, great. Why is that in my head? Why can I not remember like useful stuff? Like, do, like, do I have to like sometimes reference like how many ounces are in a, in a liter? Hmm. Like, I don't remember that. Like I look it up and it's always 16, but no, I still have to look double check. It's like, how many tablespoons are in a cup? Like, it's <laughs> like you do it enough times. And you're like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, but like, nope. These are things I have to look up, but for some reason, fish heads, fish heads, roly poly fish heads, like, great. <laughs> Eat them up. Yum. And like, but specifically when I was rewatching it, I forgot. <laughs> it's like one line that I remember where it's just like, it's like, I took it to a movie, didn't have to pay to get it in. It's like, asked it if it liked it and fish can't talk. <laughs> And I was like, for some reason, I remembered that line as well. And I laughed. And then the other one's like, they don't play the drums. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember all these stupid lines. Why can't I remember, you know, some of my friend's birthdays with clarity? Like, I know it's in October. Or I know it's in September. I don't know. It's like, wait, how, how long ago did we make this? recipe like how long has this been in the fridge like i don't know <laughs> i wish i could remember stuff like that was it one week or two weeks if it's two weeks we should definitely throw it out if it's one week there's a chance it's still viable yeah too many cooks doo, doo, doo. see them for unfortunately you cannot remember these uh you know more useful facets of life because those uh those memories of the really stupid things have just taken hold. Yeah, like they, I don't they are, they are deep rooted and do not allow for any other viable memories to grow. Yeah. And it's like I'm sure I remember a whole bunch of actual like I watched a lot of Schoolhouse Rock when I was a kid, like cuz they were always on like in between real cartoons I was trying to get to, but mm-hmm. you know, I definitely saw like Conjunction Junction and stuff like that. Do I remember all the lyrics to that? No. The one I remember is the Simpsons parody of, you know, an amendment to be, which is just basically a sarcastic, like, take on all of those things. You know, that's the one I remember all the lyrics to. And I'm hoping that they'll ratify me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> See, there's a lot of flag burners that have too much freedom. Gotta make it legal for policemen to beat them. 
Because there's limits to our liberty. At least I pray that there are, because those liberal freaks gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. I've probably seen the uh, the Simpsons parody of it far more often than I saw the actual real one from Schoolhouse Rock. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But yeah, like, I don't know. The stupid things you remember, the stupid things that latch onto your brain, where it's like, there's stuff... Yeah. There's stuff I want to try to remember, and, like, why can't... Why doesn't this sink in? Why can't I learn this thing? Oh, well... Because my brain is full of stupid crap like fish heads and, you know, whatever. It'll come in handy at some point. You just don't know when yet. But you are so prepared for that moment. Oh, yeah. You you are going to seize that moment and win the day. But until then, you're going to have to Google search, you know. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Doing the math on volume of a cylinder or something. Yeah, exactly. Though I do have to say, though, I did do a, uh, this was a few months ago. Or might have been about a year ago. See, you can't even remember. Yeah, I can't even remember, but like a, a friend of mine and I, we did a Simpsons trivia night that they had at one of like the, you know, like a pub night kind of thing. Ah, back in the before times. Yeah, in the before times, before the COVID times. And, you know, we came in second place. Nice. The, but like, it was a thing where like, you know, all the teams had to like write in their answers as they were happening. And then the top three teams for the final thing had to do like a lightning round up on stage. And I went up on stage and... You know, I got in second because, I, you know, a couple of things I was able to buzz in faster. And the one I was super proud of, and everyone just was, like, kind of, like, super shocked, like, how fast I got it was, like, they were asking, like, how much money did Krusty owe the mob when, on the episode where he was on the run, and I buzzed in immediately, I'm like, $48. Because <laughs> it was so... Or was it, the joke is, yeah. you know, they gave him a 50. He gives the, the Don a 50 and, uh, ah, two zero change. Yeah. I thank you. Yeah. But it was just like, I was like, $48. They're like, oh my God. It's like, everyone is like, even a couple of people on stage were like clapping their hands. I was just like, yep, that's the stupid crap I have in my brain. <laughs> Why did I remember that within like seconds? <laughs> You're blessed, that's why. You see, yeah. this is just the way in which you are living your best life. <laughs> oh, man. You, you are set in your uh, your skill set and, and memory knowledge, and uh, that's it. That, your brain's decided. You are just a conduit for your memories, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> what an odd way of saying that, but yes. Exactly. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Don't worry. It's perfectly cromulent saying. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but uh, if only you had more knowledge, you could be more useful for your uh, home hacking skills or whatnot. Perhaps as I try and smoothly transition to our ludicrous leadoff here this week, yeah. to try and bring this program back onto some semblance of, of a rails track. of a track. Yes, yes. yeah. <laughs> Attempting to, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. But uh, yes, if only you had more useful skills instead of just all weird memories, you could. Uh, put them to use for funny things that go viral on the internet, like this one home user, this uh, Twitter user who goes by the name Rick, who managed to invent, not invent, to take a piece of Lego set and turn it into a controller, but it was a very appropriate uh, piece of Lego or Lego set that they used for a very appropriate game to control, for what they did was they used the Lego Mario figurine that has recently come out. Uh, it came out at the start of August with all those Lego Super Mario sets. You know, the you may have seen it. Perhaps you know someone who has it. They are the expensive Lego sets. Yeah. Although, 
could say that about every Lego set now. They're not cheap these days. We've no. covered that before. But the Lego Mar- uh, Lego Mario figurine, the one that has the Bluetooth built in, the screens for eyes, mouth, and the screen and chest, and as you kind of hop it along, the play sets and jump on Goombas and, and Lego Koopas and whatnot, has actions and scenes and sound effects that go off and whatnot. Yes, that Lego Mario figurine. So that's what this home user named Rick used, and he managed to write some code and turn this little Lego Mario figurine into a controller and used it to use a ROM of Super Mario Brothers, the original Super Mario Brothers running through an emulator. Now, you might be wondering, how in the hell could he have done that, considering this Lego Mario figurine is certainly lacking in button inputs. It, in fact, has none. It, It is not your average controller. How does he do it? Well... He managed to do it using the built-in gyroscope that is in the Lego Mario figurine. As I said, in normal use with these Lego Mario playsets, you hop it along, you jump it on the Goombas and jump it up to hit the question mark blocks and makes coin noises and all that stuff. Well, it's got a gyroscope. So what he did was wrote code that taps into the gyroscope and it detected the movement of the toy. So what he did was... Uh, rigged it so that when he tilted the Mario figurine forward, that moved Mario in the original NES, or the ROM of the NES game, Super Mario Brothers, moved it forward. And if he tilted it backward, Mario goes backward. And if he would jump up and moved it up, well, then Mario would jump. So you might be wondering, okay, well, that's most of the controls. What would he do for, like, some other stuff? Say, like, if Mario had to go down a warp pipe, Well, in the Lego sets, there's a warp pipe that you can build with Legos. So he rigged that up with code as well. (laughs) And just would tap Mario to it, and then Mario goes down the warp pipe. And also, if uh, in other videos he posted to Twitter, if he had uh, Mario powered up as Fire Mario with the Fire Flower, he would just tap a little pad, boom, Mario shoots out one fireball at a time (laughs) per tap. It is... A tedious way to go about things. No one's saying he's going to set any sort of speedrun records with this. It is simply proof of concept that this is doable, this is possible, this was the idea he had and followed through on. Though you know there is going to be a new speedrun category created because of this. (laughs) Probably. I would not be surprised. And uh, to whoever actually follows through to beat Super Mario Bros., the old game, with this method of a Lego Mario controller, good on you. Yes, I will not be among your ranks. <laughs> that is a grind to uh, to practice. Yeah. Is it worth doing? Probably not. I mean, is anything worth doing these days? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, that was maybe the bleakest thing I've ever heard you say. So uh, maybe we should move along to our next story. <laughs> It, it's uh, it would be it's so not intuitive. And basically, you're sitting there with with it, uh, you know, hovering over a pad. And what it yeah, it's a neat thing. Yeah, it's a neat thing to watch. Fair, <laughs> fair. That wasn't a cry for help. Calm down. <laughs> okay, all right then. I swear it wasn't. But you know what is a cry for help? Uh, go on. Um, when you put a big event together just to try to like. Get a bunch of attention for yourself. Like, obviously Sony is in trouble. 
<laughs> like they're really hurting. <laughs> that is one interpretation of events. Yeah, that was my poor attempt at trying to transition into this next story, which is the big news of the week. Certainly is, as we will now dig into the meat and potatoes. Maybe you have heard Sony has a new console coming out in a couple months. Actually, less than a couple. A couple of weeks, really. Uh, about, okay, eight weeks. It's about two months away from release. Yeah. So we finally learned some launch details about the PlayStation 5. Sony, I guess, finally taking their turn to reveal details after Microsoft chimed in the week prior with details on the Xbox Series X launch for both the main full small mini fridge style uh, Xbox Series X as well as the small Bluetooth speaker version of the Xbox Series X, the digital yes. one. So the mini fridge and also the speaker that plays the tunes outside by the mini fridge. So, you know, you can have your whole backyard barbecue really set up. Exactly. The full yeah. backyard experience is what Microsoft is really trying to capture <laughs> yes. with their next generation of home consoles. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Sony uh, still has theirs modeled after uh, a villain or some sort of alien race with just high collars on their yeah, jackets. It's, it's like Maleficent or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's... the. I still cannot accept that as a design for the PlayStation. It's also huge. Huge. Like, way bigger than even, like, the the Xbox. Like, it sure is. Like, it, it looks towers gig- over like, that thing. It looks thing. gigantic. So, uh, let's share what we know and uh, opine as we go. So, what we know is that Sony is going to be releasing the PlayStation 5, as I said, in about two months, on November 12th, to the fans and uh, awaiting consumers in the United States, Canada, Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, and South Korea. Everyone outside of those regions will get it a week later on November 19th. So once again, if you're listening to this program, good chance you will be getting this PlayStation 5 on November 12th. Uh, if you are not in Canada, the United States, Japan, Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, or South Korea, tough beans, you get it on November 19th. So really, it sounds like Europe, Africa, and South America. Oh, and Antarctica. Yeah. So all the, all those eagerly awaiting the PlayStation 5 at all those Antarctic research stations, they have to wait a week. They won't get it until November 19th. Sorry, all you research, all, all you researchers, scientists. I mean, in theory, you should be doing science and whatnot, measuring ice, temperatures, yeah, you know, various monitoring, monitoring penguin migration habits and whatnot. Also, you can't really blame them for not really getting it to Antarctica in time. What is easy to get to Antarctica in time? That's true. It's hard to get to there. Like, it, it there's no airport or anything. Like, it's a ship that you have to go by ship, right? Ship, uh, well, you can fly out from the very, very southern tip of, I believe, Argentina. Uh, okay. There is... Um, if I recall correctly, there is basically a country at the very southern tip of South America where you can fly, and that is the nearest point, and it's a couple hours away. But it's still a couple hours away. So, so yes, those people will still have to wait regardless. And they're better off just waiting until their term is up and they come back to society as normal. So the price for all of us who are eagerly awaiting to get it and all of us who are not working at Antarctic Research Stations, that was revealed as well. So Sony is releasing the standard PlayStation 5 because, again, this comes in two different configurations. There's the standard with an optical uh, disk drive, and there's the all-digital one, which 
is sans disk drive, but is the exact same form factor. Exact same design, just no slot and no optical drive, but yeah. it's as big. Yeah, it's not smaller. Like, it's not like a sleek, scaled-down case. <laughs> it's it's still huge. It's as It's a slight bit thinner, because there's a portion, I guess, on the bottom where there's the optical drive, so the digital one doesn't have that, but you don't notice that because you're just focused on the high collar and length and height of the goddamn PlayStation 5 and its weird design. So anyway... So price points. So the standard PlayStation 5 is going to cost you $499 US dollars. So $500 US dollars. The digital version is going to cost you $399, aka $400 US dollars. What that works out to in Canadian dollars, I'd rather not know. That's too expensive. That's a lot of dollar dues. So again, $499 US for the standard PlayStation 5, $399 for the all digital PlayStation 5. And this comes a week after Microsoft showed off the release date and price points for their Xbox Series X. So let's compare uh, the with the PlayStation 5 coming out on November 10th. That is two days after Microsoft is releasing the Xbox Series X in both its fridge and Bluetooth speaker configurations. The price points for those, $499 for the regular Series X and $299 for the smaller Bluetooth Series X. So, price points all around between these four versions of consoles. But nevertheless, uh, so Sony and Microsoft, their main systems, $499, same price for each. And after the digital event, or even during, I should say, the digital event itself, the internet seemed to lose its shit over people's reactions to the release date and also the price point. Many people crying out that they believe Sony was uh, the winner of this generation. They did it right already, which is is lunacy. I kind of am on that side, though. Like, you know, like, I don't know. It's when, when, you know, all things considered equal, I don't like the mechanical design of anything of this generation. I think everything looks like crap. Like I preferred like the previous generation. Like I, I liked how the PlayStation four looked, you know, I, I didn't hate how the last Xbox looked. Mm-hmm. The last couple of them looked like it's fine. But like this time it's like, you're playing with around with these really weird form factors and I can kind of appreciate it, but I'm not a fan. Like it's, it's a lot of space. And you know, at, at the very least, the reason why, like, I don't think the price points are what made people talk about, you know, who won what. What I think people are really most excited about is the fact that this is basically just meant to kind of, like, replace your PlayStation 4. And also just be better. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, this is the upgrade for the PlayStation 4. You can, apparently, like, we'll talk about it more in a second, but apparently there's going to be, like, they've confirmed that there's, like, 99. 9% of all games they've tried or something like that. They gave, like, they gave a 99% of compatibility between all the games they tried for PlayStation 4 on the PlayStation 5. So that says to me, like, okay, like, it's literally just like a trade up. But, you know, they still haven't said anything and it seems like they're not going to confirm 
that, you know, there's any further backwards compatibility. So that still kind of sucks. What would be really cool though is if like this was like, if you have any PlayStation game previously, this is what you play. And then it would be an interesting business model for them. Every time they release an upgrade, it still plays everything. Mm-hmm. And you just, you know, it can add the new games now. So that's the value add there. If that becomes what they start doing. And also it's less confusing. Like the Xbox product line, I was looking at the names of things and I realized I'm like, oh, I don't actually know which one is which. Like I've lost track of them. Like, which is easy to do. It's super easy to do. Like I remember, like I know I think up to Series X because that was the one after the 360, was it? Uh, the Xbox One came after the 360. Oh, right. So yeah, I've already lost it. Yeah. So like it was, it went Xbox, then 360, then one, then Series It's X. now going on to Series X. Okay, so, but then there was like a Series S in between as well? Uh, the Series S, I think, was, uh, the, sm- like, the mid-cycle upgrade, but smaller one or something. Of the Xbox One? Yeah. Okay, yeah. The so, Xbox One S, and then they just kind of adopted that as the form factor? Right. But still, it's like, it's confusing, and it's like... And it's get only going to get more confusing. Yeah, if you have Series X, what's the next one going to be? Series... It's like the next one, Xbox Next. Like, what's your, like, you have no naming structure. The like, Xbox VG. Very good. Like, I saw someone post a thing where it was just like, whoever named the PlayStation 2, PlayStation 2 deserves a medal. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, or like, you know, a big pay raise. Cause it's like, yeah, PlayStation 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Done. The like, iterative nature of it is so clearly conveyed in the name. Yeah. Now, all that said, like, do I like four ninety nine as a price point? Not really. Like, I, I do want to get a PlayStation Five, but I don't know if I want to get one right away. Mind you, there are some games that they've revealed that you know kind of do pique my interest, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about that in a moment here. Yeah. Uh, so four ninety nine again. That's a pretty high price point. A lot of people, based on internet reaction, seem to be willing to shell that out. Not only say come November twelfth if they're lining up uh, to get one outside a store, but also uh, during this digital event that Sony held this week, they announced that uh, pre-orders at major retailers would uh, become live or become available the following day. Well, most, if not all, of those major retailers jumped the gun had pre-orders go live on Wednesday night, just a couple hours after this uh, PlayStation digital event, and so many of them sold out. If not all of them sold out of their pre-order stock for the PlayStation 5. So that initial wave of pre-order stock, spoken for now. Yeah. So, like, here's the thing. Like, it doesn't really matter if I don't like the price point. I know that for a brand new console, this is a good price point still Mm -hmm. like on both sides. Now the fact that the cheaper model is three 99 tells me that I think Sony's hand might've been forced by Microsoft a bit. By uh, Microsoft's uh, price point structure for the Xbox series X. Yeah. Because if their cheaper model is three 99, what I'm guessing is they probably wanted to go three 99, five 99. But given that Microsoft went four 99, 299. Like they probably went, well, we can't really go cheaper than 399 on this one, but we could probably knock this one down to 499. And they were probably, their hands are probably forced. Like if we're being honest, 
Like that's what that that pricing structure sort of tells me. I would not be surprised if their hand was forced at all. So, and that hand, it's kind of interesting, and I'm kind of glad that Microsoft did force their hand. And it would have been kind of interesting, more interesting though, to see what would have happened if Sony was the one to shoot first. If that was the case, what would people's opinions have been had Microsoft come out after to say, oh, actually this is four ninety nine. Yours is five ninety nine. Ours is four ninety nine. Yeah, and and Microsoft sticks to its four ninety nine, two ninety nine structure. Yeah, and totally and undercut totally undercuts them by a hundred bucks on both across the board. Yeah. So, would people have been saying that Microsoft won the console war? It's a good question. Like that's what I think probably would have happened. Like despite the fact that I think honestly, if I'm being honest, PlayStation seems to have a more strong launch lineup in my opinion. They do. Uh, uh, from what I've seen so far. From what like, we've seen. I mean, there's still two months between now and release date for both platforms, the yeah. Series X and the PlayStation 5, so games can be announced between now and then, moved up and whatnot. So, uh, But one of the other big games that was shown off that had people talking, had tongues wagging during the digital event, was the, re- was the reveal from Square Enix of a brand new Final Fantasy game, and this is a mainline entry. What was shown off was uh, the first four or five minutes we've ever seen of Final Fantasy 16. Yeah, so I think, you know, as a Final Fantasy fan, I think the fact that we got Final Fantasy 7 Remake last year with the promise of, you know, new episodes of Remake to be coming out at some point, I basically all but forgot about mainline Final Fantasy. Like, for some reason in my head, I thought, well, this is what they're putting their mainline effort into, clearly. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, with the production values of Final Fantasy VII, clearly this is going to be, like, the main the mainline Final Fantasy now. So this is what we're going to see for the next little while. But this honestly came as a, as a big surprise to me. Came as a surprise to a lot of people based on the reactions that no one was expecting to see a Final Fantasy game announced, and based on the wording, it seems like it's console exclusive to the PlayStation 5. Like, period. Well, or at least for a while. There is some question to this, because the it, during the reveal of Final Fantasy 16, during the digital event itself, it said one thing. Uh, news outlets reached out to Sony and Square Enix after, they got one response. Then they got a correction later on. So... What we know is that, well, the footage that was shown was actually running on a PC that was emulating the PS5 experience. They say that right off the hop, which I find kind of funny. So uh, what was announced and shown off, I believe, was also announced as coming to PC. But then later on, specifically, uh, well, some outlets, but uh, this one we're citing here is Ian Walker writing for Kotaku. Uh, reached out to a spokesperson or heard back from a spokesperson from Square Enix saying that, uh, quote, Square Enix only announced that Final Fantasy 16 is coming to PlayStation 5. But when uh, Ian Walker and Kotaku or someone else from Kotaku pointed out that, well, the trailer shown off during the digital event had explicit language that supported the existence of a PC release, the spokesperson uh, simply said, we have no further information on if Final Fantasy 16 will be released on platforms other than the PS5. And I've seen some still images and screens later that made it sound like 
Final Fantasy 16 is a timed exclusive. Yeah. So, like, that's probably what it is. It's not developed by a company owned by Sony. It's not developed by Sony themselves. It's not developed by one of their arm's length people. And we all know that exclusive is not exclusive. Remember when Cuphead was exclusive to Xbox? Yeah. Yeah. And then it came to Switch. Yeah. Exactly. So, like, that's... And they were adamant about that. They sure were. They were adamant that it was exclusive to Xbox. And then it came to Switch. So, no, nothing nothing exclusive is exclusive anymore unless it's, like, a Naughty Dog game or something because they're kind of owned by Sony. Unless it's first or second party. Yeah. It's going to be multi-platform, especially for a big game like this, like a Final Fantasy uh, sixteen where its development budget is going to be very, Huge. very large. Yeah. It would have to be multi-platform to earn back the uh, the budget for it. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, w- I would be surprised if it wasn't. Like, I mean, Final Fantasy XV came out to both the Xbox One and PS4. Yeah, and it's been like that going back quite a while now. I mean, Final Fantasy XIII came out First for PS3, then later for Xbox 360. So, same thing. And most of the classic Final Fantasy games now, you can play on pretty much any system, so... Oh god, even your phones, too. Yeah, so... Yeah, any exclusivity is kind of dead. Again, with the caveat of, like, you're not going to see Gears of War on on PlayStation. No. and vice. Like, you're not going to see Horizon Zero Dawn on Xbox, but there's reasons for that. But, like, yeah, these other massive games made by third parties that are massive third parties, like that would be like saying that, you know, like a like a Madden game or a FIFA game is not going to be released on both. Like that's ridiculous. That would be madness. Yeah. Totally madness. So, about uh, what we saw in the trailer for Final Fantasy 16 showed off uh, a game that really seems to be different compared to the last couple of Final Fantasy games we have seen. This is almost a return to uh, the roots of the series in some ways. There was many ways that they were... It was explicitly returned to the roots, basically. Well, the the first... The first thing I really noticed was... Well, like, the medieval setting is very much like the first three, four Final Fantasy games. Five Final Fantasy games, really. Six got into steampunk and stuff, and it was still kind of medieval, but... Yeah, the first four or five Final Fantasy games, really. And also the mention of crystals, because there was crystals in the first five Final Fantasy mm-hmm. games as well. And then... And the explicit naming of some of those crystals summons espers, too. Yeah, like, they mentioned Shiva. And, right off the hop, they mentioned Shiva. Yeah, and, like, Bahamut and, like, a few others as well. They, they mentioned a phoenix and a few other things. Like, these are all... All things... They also showed the the chocobos and, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, various, like, standby things for the Final Fantasy world. But, yeah, they also had, you know, the, the classic Final Fantasy music, that song that, you know, is, plays over the title card of every Final Fantasy game since the first Final Fantasy game. But then not really... Yeah, I, I guess it does play in every Final Fantasy game. I mean, I was going to say not really in some of the more recent ones, but no, like, it was also, I think, in even 15... The thing with the last two or three Final Fantasy games was that it wasn't as explicit. And I guess it wasn't in 7 either. But, like, some of them, like, they had, like, their own sort of, like, self-encompassed musical score, but with no 
recurring themes to no no nothing but nods to previous themes, not explicit musical themes. But yeah, this one had the Final Fantasy theme, like the like when you basically turn on like not not that the prelude harp thing, but like when you start the actual game, you hear that 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 song. Anyways, apologize for the humming, but that's that's it. Like we heard that in there, and it's like, oh, that's Final Fantasy, all right. It's classic Final Fantasy. It has sort of like that newer style battle, but you know, yeah, the battle system looks a lot more action based, yeah, than what uh, classic Final Fantasy turn based or you know RPGs would have or turn turn based battle systems would have, yeah. But you know. When it all boils down to it, you're basically just mashing a button anyways. Like, even in the classic Final Fantasy games, you're just kind of getting through the battles anyways. Like, you're waiting for the gauges to fill, and then you're just mashing the button to, you know, select fight and select the next nearest enemy, and that's all you're really doing. True. So it, I'm okay with that. It's not, the, whatever, that's, it's going to work out the same way, effectively. And, yeah. Feels very witchery to me. Yeah, because of the medieval setting, like, because we haven't really seen a classic style Final Fantasy game with this, with the current level of graphic cap- capability that video games can provide. So I guess it makes sense that it would be kind of closest to The Witcher because The Witcher, they really nailed it with everything. So <laughs> like, it's kind of like the perfect medieval-ish kind of setting. So yeah, the comparison is totally apt. And we haven't gotten any sort of idea of release date, this was simply a uh, debut trailer to let the world know that it's out there and coming to a PlayStation 5 console. Yeah. Possibly others, but they weren't talking about that. Yeah, because they were at the Sony event. In in their defense, they were being featured at a Sony event. It would be kind of a dick move to be like, yeah, don't worry though, it's coming to Xbox eventually too. Yeah. It's like, no, you're at the Sony experience thing. Like, you're not going to do that. Like, there's probably some crazy you know, uh, you know, legal stuff that you had to sign to be a part of that. So yeah, they probably got, uh, you know, some sort of incentive to be like, Hey, just, uh, we'll show you off and, uh, just play it off. Like, Oh yeah, yeah. Well, make it, only seem like, yeah, make it seem like it's only going to be on PlayStation. Just play for, coy, play hard to get. And you'll recoup half your development costs now. <laughs> oh, okay. Great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, Mr. Sony. <laughs> So that was one of the big things that had people talking. Actually, another aspect that got a lot of people talking, uh, though my own reaction to it a bit muted, the the idea of it is nice. Uh, Sony announced the PlayStation Plus Collection, which is a value add to their PlayStation Plus uh, membership service, subscription service. So what this PlayStation Plus Collection is, it's uh, basically a games library that you will have access to with your PlayStation Plus membership and it's going to come to the ps5 be there for launch day and at launch day it's going to have a number of big titles from the playstation 4 on it so if you are buying this new for the first time maybe haven't tried some of these games on the ps4 previously maybe don't have the discs whatever the reason might be you will be able to get and download and play these games on your ps5 right off the hop on launch day which is which is a neat idea. It's a good idea. Uh, Xbox has it with their Game Pass service. Uh, 
So this is Sony's answer to that as well. Uh, the games that some of the games that were shown off and announced already include God of War, the new God of War. Well, not new. We'll touch on that in a moment. Uh, Bloodborne, Monster Hunter World, Final Fantasy 15, Fallout 4, Mortal Kombat X, Uncharted, A Thief's End, or Uncharted 4, A Thief's End, Ratchet and Clank, Days Gone, Un- uh, Until Dawn, Detroit Become Human, Battlefield 1, Infamous Second Son, Batman Arkham Knight, The Last Guardian, The Last of Us, Persona 5, and Resident Evil 7, Biohazard. And of those, as you watched the sizzle reel for it, you were kind of underwhelmed. Well, I mean, I've been a PlayStation Plus member for a while, and I'm not going to say most of those games got for free. I, I would say about half of those games they provided for free through the PlayStation Plus service, so I already have them in my library, which when I get a PlayStation 5, because I'm, I mean, at this point, I'm, I'm kind of invested in the PlayStation ecosystem. You know, it's just, I'm not loyal to it or anything. It's just, you know, I've, I already have a PlayStation account. I have like hundreds of games for it. I might as well continue that on, especially if I can still play my PlayStation 4 games. Like, yeah, okay. I already have a library of like a couple hundred games then for free, just waiting for the, for me on this new system. About half of these games, we, they provided for free already through the PlayStation Plus service already. So, yeah, I've already got a bunch of them. And, you know, the ones I don't have, I the ones I didn't get that way, I already own. Like, you know, I already have Bloodborne, Monster Hunter World, Final Fantasy XV, Fallout 4, Uncharted 4. Like, I've, I've already paid money, Persona 5, like, I've already paid money for a lot of these games already, so, yeah, I mean, and the other ones, the ones that I don't have, I don't really care that much, like, it's okay, but if you are going to be new to the PlayStation ecosystem at this point, that is a nice thing, like, the like, it's a bunch of solid games, like, it's not bad, like, it's almost like a best of the last generation in many ways. It is. And it's games that will be there and available on launch day as well. Yeah. So they're not brand new games, but they are games that will, you know, be a good introduction to this whole experience. Because the last generation, like, I want to say that games basically got to the point where now they look really real. And I don't personally see any... I mean, of course, there's always going to be, like, little tweaks and things to make them look more real. But I feel now that with this last generation, we got to the point where it's like, if we get any more real, it gets too Uncanny Valley. Mm-hmm. So it's probably as real as it needs to get. Like, the like Uncharted 4 looks incredible. Like, it's... The animation of that game is bananas. Like, they've taken that and they've gone even a step up with the next, like, with The Last of Us Part 2, like, it's also incredible. Like, these are really crazy-looking games. So, yeah, I mean, you don't really need to wait for the next generation to get good-looking games, is all I'm trying to say. Absolutely, no. Uh, These are going to be uh, good-looking. There may even be some benefit to playing them on the PlayStation 5. Yeah, like, I know that there was benefits to playing some of these games on PlayStation 4 Pro, which I, I never bought because I had a PlayStation 4 Slim, and I couldn't justify spending 
what I think was about two hundred extra dollars on <laughs> just an upgraded, a slightly upgraded console, and also like I don't have a TV. I think that supports HDR and stuff, so it doesn't really matter, I guess. So, but yeah, I would imagine that this would probably have all the bells and whistles of the PlayStation Four Pro, and then some, and amps some. up to another degree. Yeah. So I'm sure there'll there will be benefits to playing them on your modern TV through a PlayStation Five. They'll look even better. Which is crazy. I mean, everything these days, we've said it before, we'll say it again, everything these days should look good. Yeah. It's like, or if they don't look like Last of Us level of quality and it's done by an indie developer, I can forgive that too. Because then, you know, there's basically no rules when it comes to art style of video games as long as it plays, as long as it's fun at this point. But if you're a AAA studio and your game doesn't look super fantastic, maybe you can't justify a $200 million budget. Maybe there's no justification for that. Entirely possible. So, uh, Kind of like Amazon when they put out that one game. Oh, earlier this year. Yeah. And then walked it back and then just ultimately removed it from being for sale and brought it back into beta. Yeah. Yeah. Because it wasn't good. Yeah. It's like, well, if you're Amazon, it should be, it should be at the level of like some of these games. Like, it should be. It shouldn't look like a game that was released for the PlayStation 2 20 years ago. In Amazon's defense, they were busy just completely destroying all supply chains and taking over everything. Right, right. Video games were kind of a blind spot to them. They're new to it, okay? Give them three years, and then soon we'll eventually be playing the Amazon whatever device. As soon, Alexa will just be beaming games directly into our brain. Won't that be good? And then they'll be suggesting, you know, various snacks and stuff that they've already subscribed and saved for us. Hooray! Yay! Oh, they could tell you thought about it, so they just placed an order for you. Yeah. So one of the games in this PlayStation Plus collection is uh, God of War, the most recent God of War, which I'm going to take issue with because it, the naming structure is confusing. It's it's the new old God of War, where it's the Kratos from the old God of War games, but it's in a reboot but they're rebooting his storyline and gave him a dad bod and everything. And he was in Norway and with a wife and son again, and just trying to live a, you know, quieter, simpler life. So during the PlayStation digital event, they also showed off the next God of War game that actually has a release window. They announced it as coming in 2021. Uh, No footage of it though was shown off. Literally. It's just the title card, God of War two and the, uh, I guess symbol is all done in blue, and people have noted that the rune symbols that appear uh, written on the God of War logo uh, spell out Ragnarok. So I'm hoping that at least they give the next God of War game the subtitle of God of War Ragnarok. Hopefully. Instead of just calling it God of War 2. Yeah, because that's going to get really confusing really quick, because there, hey, there already was a God of War, and a God of War 2, and a God of War 3. So... Don't know. Please don't. No. Someone just needs to correct them in their God of War naming schemes. Well, hopefully, you know, the next one's called God of War Ragnarok, and then the third one's called Ragnarok 3. <laughs> so, so that'll be... Uh, <laughs> Taking from the Rambo naming structure. Yes. And then the fourth one will be John Ragnarok. <laughs> 
or or John Kratos. Yeah, there you go. Done. I figured it out. Don't worry. We got this. We got this under control. I'm sold. I'm there. I'm seeing it. I'm liking it. Uh, so one other detail that we've learned in the wake of the PlayStation digital event, uh, revealed in a blog post to the official PlayStation blog, uh, after the digital event is that games like Demon's Souls and other first party titles are going to come in at a $70 price point. That's $70 US, which is about $10 more than what the normal previous price point was. So the Normal price point for first-party titles in the PS4, Xbox One era was $60 US. Apparently now, that's going up to $70 US, or at least it is for Sony first-party games. Uh, I imagine that Microsoft will follow suit with that, because there's money to be made. And they're all taking a cue from Nintendo. That's true. I mean, all the Switch games are that much. I mean, it's not great, but it is what it is. It's it just, it's the, it's a fact of buying games these days now. I mean, thankfully, with the PlayStation Store, they do have quite big sales. And I mean, I'm not trying to, like, I'm getting no benefit out of saying this, but if you're a PlayStation Plus member, there are some pretty crazy deals for PlayStation Plus members in the stores. Like, they often have like 60 to 80% off of things just randomly in their stores, it seems. So, like, it's not the worst thing in the world. So, like, an $80 game, if you wait a couple of months, chances are you'll be able to get it for, like, 45 bucks. Like, so... And then if you wait even longer, it will go into one of those crazy sales, I'm sure. Yeah, eventually. And or, and Or it might even show up as a free title available for download on PlayStation Plus. So there's always that chance. But, yeah, it's just... with Like, that's the... That's the double-edged sword. Like, these games are looking better and better, and the budgets of these games are getting bigger and bigger, but because of that, they have to charge more and more for them because the budgets are bigger and bigger, and they have to be able to justify it. So, it's, uh, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, I guess. It's, uh, we are going to, uh, probably very soon, uh, if not this generation, perhaps, uh, next generation, or even the gen- generation after, but get back to a game costing Normal game out of the box costing a hundred bucks. Hundred bucks. That's Good. what it was back in the Super Nintendo Sega Genesis days. Yep, that's uh, what I paid for. I believe Pokemon Stadium on the N sixty four. Yeah, I I remember going through some old. You know, I I guess it was lodged in with an old some old magazines I had, but it was an old flyer for a store that we used to have in Winnipeg called Consumers Distributing, which was basically, I think it was a chain across Canada where. It was basically, they had just a bare bones storefront and you would go, you know, you would order out of the catalog and like they would order it in for you. And when it was in, you would just pick it up at the store. They had, you know, every year they would put out a little video game catalog thing. And I distinctly remember seeing Final Fantasy, well, we knew it as three at the time for Super Nintendo for sale. And the price was $109. That was 1994. So when people talk about video games being so expensive these days, like, yeah, they're, they're pricey, but I, I no, they're not also <laughs> they're, like, they're kind of really not. 
That's $109 in like 1993 currency. That's what I said, 1994 currency. So with inflation, it's more than that, uh, maybe $150, $160, which of course would be more than what the first party games cost these days, even with the fact that Sony at the very least, and likely Microsoft too, Nintendo is already there, uh, charging $70 for their first party games. And because the company, the first party games are that much, then you also see, or most likely will see other third party companies charging that same elevated price point for their games as well, simply because they don't want to potentially catch hell from the company, Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo, for maybe undercutting their prices on some major titles. Kind of if you think about it in the way that uh, t-shirt sales and pr- t-shirt prices happen and work at a concert, in that the opening acts cannot sell their t-shirts for cheaper than the, the main headliner. Yeah, exactly. Also, just because I was curious, I looked it up on the bankofcanada.ca's inflation calculator. $109 in 1994 would be $174 in 2020. Jesus God. Yeah, so when we were spending, well, let's just, for the hell of it, say, you know, because a lot of games were $99 in 1994, that's $158 in 2020 dollars. Wow. So, and there were no digital sales for these things. Like, no, there were no sales for them. The best you could hope for is that the video rental place would be selling them used for like half price. At best, so where you would be spending, you know, like, I picked up a lot of Super Nintendo games for, like, $30, $40, like, so let's just see, just out of curiosity, $30 in 1994 would be forty seven ninety now, um, so 40 would be 63 so, yeah, video games, I would argue that they are kind of still really, really cheap. When you think about inflation and stuff, like, yeah, the price, the number now is higher than the numbers from a couple of years ago, but they're also lower than they were. But yeah, like, we've, we've made our point. Yes. Like, like, we don't want to belabor it too much, but like, yeah, maybe we can't really be complaining too much about how cheap 70 or how expensive 70 bucks is. And with that too, the argument can also be made that with these, even with a higher price point, the quality of game you're getting is far superior. Well, games are way more complicated to make now than they ever were. Like, back in the day when, again, for those $174 in $2020 games, these are, like, very simple, like, 2D... Well, we, I say simple now. It would have been a big deal back then, but... big complicated... Like, it's, it's a 2D game. You know, like, yeah, there are complicated systems and stuff at play a lot of the times, but at the core, the art's not as complicated. Like, the mechanics are not as complicated. There's only, you know, not... There's nowhere near as many moving parts, basically. Mm -hmm. And these games don't have the crazy, like, replay modes and things like that often. So, yeah, like, (laughs) the games now are way more advanced than they've ever been. So it makes sense that they would cost a certain amount of money and you're paying, you know, less than half what some of those old, uh, to use the example again, of Final Fantasy III, uh, cost in current dollars paying less than half of that for, you know, 
a new first party Sony game, Microsoft game that yeah. is going to look awesome, sound awesome, uh, be a wicked experience and give you 60, 70, maybe 80 hours of, of gameplay value. Yeah. You are getting a better deal. Absolutely. So bear that in mind. But yes, the initial sticker price point, it sucks that it's going up, but is a reality. And also we have pointed out the, uh, the reference point for, for the two of us that We've paid more and gotten less. Absolutely. So bear that in mind. But uh, so Sony with their PlayStation 5 digital event. Um, yeah, the I guess the uh, the dates and lines in the sand have now been drawn. November 10th for the Microsoft Xbox sexes and November 12th for the PlayStation 5s. Who's going to win? Uh, which one's deadliest? Look, with either system, you're going to get a good system, you're going to get good games. Yeah. And for the most part, all the major games are multi-platform these days. Yeah, and when they say, ex- when a third party says exclusive, they don't mean exclusive. They mean exclusive for now. So, yeah, that that quote-unquote exclusive Demon Souls that you're, you know, you're, you're bummed out about because you don't want to buy a PlayStation 5, it's probably going to, like, it's going to come to PC eventually too. Mm-hmm. Like, things like that. Like, they're all, yeah. So, as you've said uh, before, you're already kind of invested in the PlayStation ecosystem, so you're probably going to get a PlayStation 5 yeah. at some point down the line. So, um, so yeah, either you're going to win. There's good games. I'm just going to continue to sit on the sidelines and wait and see what happens. Maybe N- Nintendo finally releases a Switch Pro next year in, like, springtime. Yeah. Or maybe just they make the current Switch with the upgrades of a Switch Pro for the same price point. Because as it is come November, there's going to be price points all around. The Switch Lite is uh, going to retail for $199. Switch itself, normal Switch, retails for $299, which is also the Xbox uh, Bluetooth speaker, the uh, all-digital Xbox Series S or Xbox Series X. Um that's two ninety nine. Three ninety nine is the digital PS five, and then four ninety nine is the real PS five and the real Xbox Series X. Yeah. So the mini fridge edition. Yeah. Which I like this uh, distinction we have with the Xbox Series X units. <laughs> one's a Bluetooth speaker, one's a mini fridge. I like it. Yeah. I'm going to continue referring to them as such. Yeah, I mean, like, there's no reason not to. It's a it's a nice easy way to just kind of like differentiate. Absolutely. So, uh, at least, at least those two, uh, designs of the Xbox Series X, uh, the fridge and the Bluetooth speaker, they are very distinctly different. One is colored black, one's colored white. You cannot really tell the digital PS5 apart from the optical drive PS5, other than if you look closely for an optical drive. Yeah. So bear that in mind as you uh, are making your purchasing decisions later on this year. But, uh, uh, let's take some time now to Maybe talk about another subject for a few minutes while we still have some time left in this program and kind of catch up on the doings, happenings, legal filings between Apple and Epic Games, two companies that have way too much goddamn money. Yeah, though arguably one on an order of magnitude bigger than most people on the planet Earth. Combined. Combined. So, yeah, obviously Apple is like really the Goliath in this case with being a $2 trillion company. And, you know, it sounds ridiculous to say, but Epic Games is David in this case because they only have, what, 
Seventeen billion. Seventeen billion dollars is which, their evaluation, which is also an insane thing to say. Like, oh, they only have seventeen billion dollars. That's still a crazy amount of money. Just to be very clear here, but yeah. So as you know, in case you've been living entirely under a rock, Epic Games basically tried to, you know, sidestep the App Store for their in-app purchases, and they basically introduced their own in-app purchase system that completely gets around needing to use Apple's payment ecosystem, and Apple was not happy about it, so they basically shut it down, and then they Epic Games fired back with, you know, an ad campaign that parodies the classic Apple 1980s ad campaign and the whole thing differently thing and all that stuff, and Yes, and then it, it, it's now it's in the courts, and you know now they're firing back and forth with you know various legal actions, and the latest thing is that Apple has decided no, we're we're taking our ball and we're going home, effectively, so they have pulled uh, Epic Games App Store developer account and they've blocked any future Fortnite updates. They have that. Uh, that was the threat that Apple made. When this all kind of started and Epic Games decided to start yipping, start nipping at the heels of Apple and trying to uh, get their attention and be an annoying little chihuahua-like pest of a company to the Goliath that is Apple. Uh, that was something Apple threatened to do by the end of August. They eventually did, uh, telling uh, Bloomberg, uh, the business journal outlet Bloomberg, that, quote, we are disappointed that we had to terminate the Epic Games account on the App Store. We have worked with the team at Epic Games for many years on their launches and releases. Uh, the court recommended that app, that Epic comply with the App Store guidelines while their case moves forward. Guidelines they followed for the past decade until they created this situation. Epic has refused. Instead, they repeatedly submit Fortnite updates designed to violate the guidelines of the App Store, this is not fair to all other developers on the App Store and is putting customers in the middle of their fight. And so Apple actually followed through with that. So again, if you look to download Fortnite now on iOS devices, you cannot. If you look to look for any sort of latest Fortnite update on iOS devices, that's not going to be there. So that happened. And then about a week after, uh, yeah, after that happened, uh, Apple decided to file its own suit against Epic Games. Yeah, countersuit. Yeah, as is going to happen, these two companies are going to sue, countersue, counter, countersue, counter, counter, countersue until basically they're told to stop by some sort of judge. So Apple filed a countersuit against Epic Games allegedly breaching for allegedly breaching their contract with the iOS App Store. Uh, it is just, or was a new escalation. In the court filing, Apple said, quote, uh, Epic's flagrant disregard for its contractual commitments and other misconduct has caused significant harm to Apple. <laughs> Left unchecked, Epic's conduct threatens the very existence of the iOS ecosystem and its tremendous value to customers. Hmm. So that was Apple's filing after Epic, a couple days prior, had uh, filed their own motion uh, to get the, I guess, Apple to reinstate their... I guess, developer account and such. So there's that. And then just recently this week, just a few days ago, Apple responded in their own way once again to Epic Games demanding that uh, they have their developer account and restored and have Fortnite restored to the iOS 
uh, ecosystem, new uh, filings that uh, basically are saying this is all Epic Games' creation. They are the problem. Uh, saying in a 37-page briefing that was filed with the court, quote, Epic started a fire and poured gasoline on it and now asks this court for emergency assistance in putting it out, even though Epic can do so itself by in an instant by simply adhering to their contractual terms that they have profitably governed its relationship with Apple for years. Uh, Apple also adding Epic could have avoided any further harm involving both Fortnite and an Unreal Engine with a simple keystroke. So... Uh, they say that Epic is holding its own customers hostage to gain leverage in a business dispute. So, here's the thing that I'm reading from all of this. If Epic basically saying, we're going to just make our own money on our own, is doing the quote-unquote undue harm that Apple's saying, maybe Epic's right. Like, maybe, maybe Epic is kind of like, generating a lot of revenue, then, if that's the case. Maybe Epic is really generating a lot of revenue, and maybe Apple, maybe they feel like it's an untenable, unfair agreement. Weird. Hmm. It's almost like, like, I think the number here that I saw is that Fortnite made $1.2 billion on iOS since launching in 2012. And... Apple's cut of that $1.2 billion was $360 million USD. It's a pretty good amount. It's a pretty good amount for not doing any work <laughs> other than providing an app store, which you have to use to get your stuff onto a device. It's an artificial gateway created by Apple themselves to leave their devices hard to get stuff onto. It almost, almost sounds like a shakedown. Like, hey, it's a nice app uh, you've got there. Be a shame if uh, if you weren't be able if you wouldn't be able to release it at all. Yeah, something because, happened and uh, got shut down out of our store. Yeah, it's like oh, fancy. It's more like fancy app you've got there. Well, you gotta get a developer account with us and all this. You know, get all of our tools and get all of this. You know, tooling that works only with our devices, and then you have to get. You know agree to all these crazy terms and then you can get your your really neat looking app on our device yeah there you go that sounds reasonable right does it sound reasonable i no it doesn't sound reasonable and i'm i'm 100% on epic side on this do i think they're going to win probably not but i'm 100% on their side is it ridiculous the way they've kind of done it yeah and i think that's kind of the point you need to kind of make a big splash to be able to make a point of this. And, you know, of course they're going to put their the legions of fans in the middle of this. It's like, that's how you get movements going. When you have, like, millions and millions of people who are playing this game who are complaining now, now, in their minds, they love playing Fortnite, and in their minds, they're not going to think, Oh, Epic Games really shouldn't have, you know, had all that misconduct. There's a bunch of kids going, oh man, I can't play it on my Apple anymore. I'm going to get a Samsung. That's what they're going to say, and that's what this equates to. And I think it's hilarious. Now, those millions and millions of fans you, you mentioned in their Apple in their most recent filing kind of takes a shot at that, the idea of Fortnite having millions and millions of fans saying, quote, 
at one point in their 37-page filing, quote, for reasons having nothing to do with Epic's claims against Apple, Fortnite's popularity is on the wane. By July 2020, interest in Fortnite had decreased by nearly 70% as compared to October 2019. This lawsuit and the front-page headlines it has generated appears to be a part of a marketing campaign designed to reinvigorate interest in Fortnite. Okay. So, yeah. So, the problem isn't Apple, it's Epic Games, and just, you know, this game, Fortnite, it's long in the tooth, and uh, not that many people are into it anymore. Yeah, so this is Apple basically trying to tell people what they want to they want them to think. Now, what metrics Apple used to come up with that figure of a 70% decrease in the popularity as compared to October 2019, I don't know. That isn't stipulated. That also might just be metrics on iOS devices, as Fortnite is literally on every device. True. Like, they only have metrics for Apple devices. Presumably, they don't have access to, like, Epic Games' internal analytics. That would be ridiculous. And like, when they took that sample, did they take that sample after the uh, developer account and after this brouhaha all started? Uh, we don't know. Uh, or well, they say by, by July 2020, but this started um, in what, late July, early August? Yeah. So, so yes. So this is going to keep happening. As I've said before, uh, there will be generations of, you know, these lawyers' children that will basically have college paid for, bought and paid for, off this lawsuit. Yeah. And all the countersuits and all the... Like, the billable hours is going to be crazy. Yep. And they're the only people who are really going to benefit from this whole saga. Neither Apple or Epic Games are benefiting at all. No. But, you know, hopefully Epic Games kind of makes some headway with this, because I'm on their side. It is a ridiculous business practice. Like, I I think it is kind of insane that they put out a device and they basically lock it down to the point where it's like, you have to use all of our official, our official tools to load stuff onto it. It's like, like they could say, if you want to make sure that your device is safe, do that. And I would agree with them. But, you know, what's to say that, you know, someone else comes out with their own app store. That's basically like if Valve came out with a computer, came out with their own operating system and locked you into using Steam for literally everything. Mm-hmm. Like, no, you you have to get all of your apps off of Steam. You can't just, that that CD that you bought in the store, you can't use it. It's like, you, you know that game you spent $80 on a disc in the store? No, you, you can't use that anymore. You have to buy it through Steam. Well, oh, okay. Well, that sucks. <laughs> like, what am I, like, really? Like, so this is kind of a, like, people may, maybe don't really think about it as that big of a deal, but it is a big deal. Like, these are powerful computers that we have in our, in the palms of our hands. Mm-hmm. And since they're computers, you should just be able to install apps on them, like, or programs as we used to call them. <laughs> Remember when they were called programs? Sure do. When they would, you know, programs would have installer disks and they wouldn't all be from some unified app store. That's true. Now, granted, that wasn't, necessarily a better time and it wasn't necessarily a better experience but the way that the internet and stuff is now like if there is like some other game store on like some website why why couldn't you just download 
apps from a website and install them. I mean, you can on Android. Gives you a warning saying this isn't from an official source, but do you want to proceed? Please proceed with caution. Okay. Like, make sure you trust the source of this file. Like, okay, fine. And presumably if you're spending money on a thing, like, people, you know, will have recourse if it wrecks their phones and stuff. So there will be, you know, lawsuits and stuff involved otherwise. So, like, if Epic Games is just providing a download of Fortnite on their website for your phone, why shouldn't you be allowed to install that, for example? And then why shouldn't you just be allowed to kind of get, you know, do your in-app purchases there? Like, that's it's ridiculous that you have to go through the App Store and everything has to be signed in a very specific way. Like, they say it's for security, but it's really for control. Absolutely. And ensuring that they get their cut. Yeah of everything and every transaction that happens through their app store that they are forcing and compelling people to use. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if Epic Games uh, is aware that they they very well could lose and perhaps are expecting to lose or anticipating that they're going to lose this, but... Well, this is a calculated move for sure. Like, they've probably seen how Fortnite's performing on other platforms and probably, you know, rolled the dice and went, you know what, iOS is a lost cause anyways. Let's just try to do something against Apple here. Mm-hmm. Like, we're probably fine elsewhere, but, you know, let's stick it to Apple a bit. Yeah. To raise a bigger point and a bigger issue, the entirely closed-off ecosystem is essentially creating a shakedown for developers and anyone conducting business and transactions on the iOS platform. Yeah. And even even if, fine, like, let's say they're adamant on the security thing and that you have to use their tooling, the 30% cut of literally everything is kind of untenable. Oh, it's ridiculous. Like, it's... It might not be a big deal if you're just an indie developer just starting out and, like, you know, you're making 70 cents on every dollar, like, fine. You know, if that's the way that you're getting your salary every year, fine, or however you're running your small business. But the moment that, like, you you have a big app that is doing, like, a lot of money and you have a big staff of people to support, that becomes a huge deal. Oh, God, does it ever. Every, like, every cent, every dollar matters at that point. Yeah, and it's it's not easy to scale when you have like a 30% albatross hanging over around your neck. Like 30% of every dollar is spoken for by Apple. Yeah. So no matter what you do, you're locked into that. So it's like, well, okay, crap. So anyways, so where it goes from here, there's going to be more filings. There's going to be a much larger, I guess, uh, court session, I believe in two weeks' time on September 28th between Apple and Epic Games and their armies of lawyers, respectively. So, uh, you know what? I fully expect that come September 28th, nothing will be resolved. Everything will be load, laid over for a month or and then another month or, uh, you know, one thing will be resolved and then, but like, so it'll be some minor issue and then much larger issues will be pushed off for later days and whatnot or someone will file for... Uh, a delay or something for whatever reason. So this is not going to be resolved until we're into 2021. No. So that's just the reality of it. So help probably 2022 even like these kind of court cases go on forever. Oh, absolutely. Because once there's a final decision that's rendered, well then the uh, party that comes out on the losing side has to decide whether or not they want to appeal to some sort of other higher court that becomes its own legal process. Yeah, millions more is spent on that in billable hours. So, uh, yeah, 2021 at the earliest is any kind of resolution. Yeah, we can expect in this. So we will 
in the weeks ahead, uh, bring you some selected snippets of how this is all going to unfold. Uh, we're not really going to bring you the play-by-play because there's no point. No. In the legal proceedings. We're no, not, I'm... we're not legal nerds. You're not legal nerds. Or you're probably not legal nerds. No. It... But if you are, there's better podcasts. There's better YouTube channels. I mean, I'm sure Legal Eagle probably has an episode going on this or something like, go watch a channel like that instead. Go look out a podcast. Look for podcasts like that. We'll, we'll just give you, you know, our own opinions, which are not lawyerly opinions <laughs> by any means. If you haven't picked up on that, uh, yeah. neither of us has been called to the bar. Well, no. <laughs> not the legal bar. Not the legal bar, anyway, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. Good, good. I, I didn't until you threw in that, uh, that weird over-exaggerated laughter at the end there, so that really sealed it. Then I was on the trolley. Perfect. But let's take this time. The trolley to the bar? Oh, yeah. It's to a the, bar trolley. The bar district? It's a, we're doing a bar crawl trolley style? Yeah. Yeah. We're taking the bar trolley to the bar district where there's for, other bar trolleys. For a trolley bar crawl? Yeah. I'm down. Nice. A trolley crawley. <laughs> Perfect. It's an old-fashioned trolley crawley. <laughs> Haven't been on one of those in a while. Uh, gum, it's been a while. <laughs> My liver will hate me, but by God, we're going to have some fun before that. <laughs> uh, but let's take this time to uh, perhaps get into our final segment of the program. Uh, if you are not aware, no, it's not where we talk about bar crawls and our days of uh, drinking in bygone eras. No, no, it's uh, the portion of the program we like to call the blast from the past, where we take some time to wax nostalgic about uh, pieces of media and entertainment that we remember, sometimes fondly, sometimes less than fondly. Uh, but still pieces of entertainment that we think are worth talking about and worth fetting as they are celebrating some kind of milestone anniversary. And we have not one, not two, not three, but four items in the Blast from the Past this week. All of them are animated series uh, from the 80s and 90s that we have watched a lot. <laughs> we have spent more time than we can count and calculate devoted to watching these cartoons. Some are good, some less than good, some memorable for different reasons, but uh, we have four of them. So two of them actually started, well, actually, two started on the exact same day, and the other two started basically a day apart. So would you like to start with the more recent ones or the older ones? We could probably go older first. All right. Well, to go older is to take us back to September 14th, 1985, for that was the day that these two cartoons made their debut. One of them by Disney, one of them not by Disney, hard to believe, I know, but uh, so one of them was kind of the start and genesis of the Disney afternoon. The other one taught kids morals and lessons and just how to try and be a good person in life. Uh, Where would you like to start with those two? Both of them bear-based. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. We could probably go... Let's go Let's go the, the moral one first. Good, yes, yeah. okay. So the moral one, again, starting on September, September 14th, 1985. Uh, this cartoon was likely something you heard about, uh, may have watched back then, uh, in the years since, because it stayed on TV for quite a long time, even after its initial run was over. Uh, this cartoon was The Care Bears. Yes, yeah. The Care Bears. Talking about Care Bears on the arcade. Uh, cartoon from the bygone era. Totally understand if you uh, 
are of a younger age and have never seen this, uh, cartoons have become quite different since the era of Care Bears. Uh, there's a, a ramp up in the wacky, zany nature of cartoons these days, and there's a slower pace to Care Bears as it was aimed at a younger audience. So here's here's what I think it is. There's basically, there's stuff that's very, like these days it seems like there's stuff that's very, very basic meant for children up to a certain age, and then there's not really a gap. Like there's no in-between programming, it seems, between very, very basic and zany as hell. Mm-hmm. So it, it goes from, you know, very basic, like kind of boring. I would consider it boring if I was a kid, probably watching some of the stuff that I've seen some kids watch these days, um, where it's just like they're teaching lessons and stuff, but it's all just kind of like flat, not really like there's colorful characters and stuff, but they're not memorable and there's no real memorable nothing super memorable about it. But then, mm. then they jump into the wacky zany with going from one to the other, basically uninterrupted. Like, so there's like a big jump and it seems kind of jarring. Yeah. From basically going from first year to fifth year. Yeah. Whereas, and- whereas back when we were growing up, I feel like shows had elements of both. So it wasn't so jarring when you went, when you got to be an older kid and would watch stuff intended for older kids that, you know, had more kind of maybe zany jokes and stuff that you would get because you would, you were introduced a bit to that already. And I think Care Bears, if we haven't mentioned Care Bears yet. We did, yes. Okay, yeah. So Care Bears had a little bit of both. I mean, it was very gentle in nature, obviously meant for little children, to basically understand very basic concepts, like each Care Bear had a charm on its stomach, and the charms all represented basically just very basic emotions and needs. Like, one of them was grumpy, there was like a... There was Sleepy Bear. Sleepy Bear, a Hungry Bear. And Cheer Bear. Yeah, various kind of things. They all represent basic emotions and things like that, and whatever. It was... It was their, their powers were emotions and getting people to show their emotions and things like that. And, you know, the bad guy, what was the bad guy in it? No heart? No heart, yes. No heart was the bad guy, yeah. But there was also, they did have some, if I'm remembering correctly, um, or cold heart? Uh, I remember him as no heart. Uh, perhaps in different uh, regionalizations and localizations of, of the program, he, his name changed, but uh, I recall watching ones where he was no heart, and he uh, would appear every so often, but his main hench people were his niece, Shrieky, and yeah. her little, uh, weird little... Beastly? Yeah, weird little beast-like creature named Beastly, who... And they were the wacky ones. They, they were. They would bring wacky comedy into it, so... So yeah, there was like these gentle care bears who were the good guys and there was always, they were always helping out, you know, some problem usually called, usually caused by no heart and his hench people. Um, but then there was wackiness and there, there was both. So there was always like, there was a bit of a ramp up just intrinsically by watching the show. Like it was appropriate for young children, but they could appreciate different elements of it as they got a little bit older. And that's sort of like what I'm, the impression I get when I think back at the 
shows of our youth versus the shows that kids are watching now, like, I might be way off base or I might be really wrong, but, like, when I think about other children's programming, a lot of things were like that. Like, Sesame Street was like that. Like, when you look back at some Sesame Street skits, I can watch them as an adult and laugh. Like, I look at Ernie and Bert things, I'm like, oh, this is why we're all sarcastic. Oh, because Ernie is a dick. <laughs> He's just the worst to Bert. <laughs> like, like, it's just ridiculous. Like, okay. And on, not only that, you could appreciate uh, some of the celebrity cameos doing wacky, weird things. Like Robin Williams with the shoe. Yes. With them putting a bunch of dog food and ice cream and stuff in a shoe, then putting the shoe back on, and then be like, think you know a man, walk a mile in his shoes, and just walk off. It was. They looked like they were nice shoes, too. Like, I don't think they had that planned. Anyways. Or, or even the one with Patrick Stewart, uh, I remember, too, of a bee or not a bee. Yes. <laughs> Basically doing Shakespeare, but to the letter B. Yeah. But yeah, anyways, back to Care Bears. Like, yes. Um, yeah, it was, I want to say it was maybe, I don't know if it was really as popular in the States as it might have been in Canada, because I think it was mostly like a Nelvana production, as far as I know. Not impossible. It had a good run. I mean, it had its toy line, had its, you know, line of stuff, characters and whatnot. But the, the TV show in specific, like, in hindsight, kind of Canadian when I'm looking at the cast and stuff, like, Luba Goy was on it. Holy hell. Like, which, if you're Canadian, you know that Luba Goy was on the Royal Canadian Air Force, which might mean, you know... That might have sh- meant something 10 years ago. Yeah, like, depending on how old you are, that was either your parent, the show that your parents or grandparents would watch. For me, it was parents, probably you parents as well. Par- well, grandparents. Grandparents for you, okay, yeah. But yeah, then others like Billy Mae Richards, Jane Eastwood, um, Janet Lane Green, all like classic Canadian actors and actresses like Linda Sorensen. A lot of names you might not know off the top of your head, but like, when you see things that they've done and stuff, you go, Oh, him. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, like I'm not going to say re- I recommend going back and watching any old care bears. Like I don't know how it aged. Like, I don't know if it aged well, but it's had more recent, uh, reintroductions to, to modern audiences, of course, redone fully in CG. Um, and perhaps, uh, more playing up the, the individual bears to give them more unique personalities and playing that up so then they can be spun off and marketed accordingly into their own, you know, toy line, whatever else like that. Yeah, but very much rooted in that 80s tradition of we need, like, we have a design for one type of thing. How do we make it look like a whole bunch of different type of things? Oh, I know what we can do. Put a different charm on its stomach. They did it with My Little Pony. They did it with Care Bears. They did it with... uh um, strawberry shortcake. They yes. did it with like there was a number of these. Popples was another one. Yes, it was. Like there was, there was lots of these different things. I mean, Cabbage Patch Kids, Cabbage too. Patch Kids as well. Um, to maybe a lesser extent, the Garbage Pail Kids was another one. Mm-hmm. But that that was a little bit more unique designs and stuff. But yeah, it was. This was basically a very much like by the numbers thing that they did in the eighties. And then, of course, in, there was a number of episodes on Care Bears where they brought in the Care Bear cousins, yeah. <laughs> where they were just entirely different. Yeah. 
they weren't just all, you know, bear clones. They were actually different animals, yeah, which didn't really make any sense. When you see, like, an elephant, you're like, how are you a Care Bear cousin? Or there's the lion. It's like, what? Well, they're, they're cousins that, you know, they're not, they're, they're weird offshoots from afar. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, but I do distinct, distinctly remember watching Care Bears basically every morning in like the block of time I had before school and eating cereal and, you know, just getting ready for the day and whatnot. And it would be on YTV in my case. Yeah. Like I definitely remember watching Care Bears as well. Care Bears was always on. My sister was a bigger fan of it than I was, but I would watch Care Bears, you know, it was in sort of like a block of various children's programming that was on in the morning. Mm-hmm. Like I remember seeing like things like romper room and you know, uh, Muppet babies Muppet as well. Babies and you know, skittle bits for the Winnipeg kids out there. True to very local kid show. <laughs> so care bears uh, again, kind of from a, a very different time, which happens when it debuted on September 14th, 1985, which was the same day that this other bear based cartoon started. This was the start really of the Disney afternoon. This was Disney's adventures of the gummy bears. And one of the, the things we kind of spoke of last week when talking about the anniversary of tailspin was Disney's approach to doing these Saturday morning slash afternoon cartoons but in really different styles compared to the source material. In the case of Tailspin, uh, that was based on the Jungle Book, but they made the cartoon adaptation of it into uh, really like a, you know, post-war 1930s, 1940s, you know, travel style, uh, you know, based in Cape Suzette, and, and just the look and feel of it was entirely different. This Gummy Bear cartoon was loosely based on the Gummy Bear candies, uh but set in a medieval realm, which I think was medieval. I was looking back on it. I'm not entirely sure if it was medieval or like, you know, old Bavarian style, like 1800s Bavaria. Yeah. It's unclear. Like it, it always seemed like it was sort of like supposed to be kind of like almost feel like it would have been beside Robin Hood or something. Yeah. Like that kind of vintage. Yes. So I think that's a good way of putting it, but Entirely unrelated to anything like the gummy bear candies had to offer as a basis for a backstory, but based on these bears who live in trees in the woods and are basically spend their days bouncing around and are able to drink a magic elixir, which gives them special bear powers. Also, something I find very funny about this, not talking about the content of the show or anything, but the Wikipedia page is kind of funny when they talk about how uh, the series was, you know, first animated by Walt Disney television, and it was loosely inspired by the gummy bears candy because the Disney CEO at the time, Michael Eisner was struck with inspiration when his son requested the candies one day. So because of that, he's listed as one of the creators of the show. (laughs) And also he's Michael Eisner. So he had to get a credit, I'm sure, or else probably people's jobs were on the line. It's true. (laughs) Which is hilarious. Like this, like massive power, like executive guy. This guy is like a, and really kind of like an old money type executive, like really being like, Oh, my son was eating these candies called gummy bears. There's a show in there. Make it. And because of that, he got a credit. Have you heard of these candies called gummy bears? Why aren't we on this? Why aren't we making a show about it? Uh, so then there's probably Double like, time. So then they probably had a bunch of thoughts like, did we just buy a candy company? Is this <laughs> your own, what's happening? 
Why are we making this show? But no, Disney did not buy a candy company. No. They were just figured, hey, these are popular. Sure, let's go with it. Okay. And you have your standard types of the, uh, you know, old matriarch kind of, basically they're like a family of bears, I believe. Yeah, they're all something gummy. They all have like alliterative names like Zummy Gummy, Gruffy Gummy, Grammy Gummy, Tummy Gummy, and he was the fat one. Of course, there's yeah. always a fat one. Sunny Gummy is the preteen girl. Cubby Gummy is the uh, youngest bear cub, I guess. Then Augustus Gusto Gummy is the artsy one. Then Chummy Gummy is the uh, adventurous one, who's the youngest member of the group, and therefore last surviving gummy at Gummerset. And all, all the names are all puns on gummy this, gummy that. So, like, I think that where they live is the Gummy Glen. And, yeah, anyways... I don't really remember much about this show other than the theme song. Me too. I'm in that same boat because this kind of... This was uh, a little bit before our time. Like, it was... Like, we were alive when this show was on. But if I'm being real, I was really young when this show was airing. And I feel like of all of the Disney cartoons, this one was rerun the least. Uh, that is my sense of things as well. I think it uh, kind of really was the entry... Uh, into these Saturday morning cartoons for Disney, and then they just took off after that with things like Tailspin and Darkwing Duck and Goof Troop in the uh, the wake after it. So this we, this is its legacy. It was the start of the Disney afternoon, and and we owe it that respect. But also, just you know, as I glance back at the Wikipedia page here for a second, I'd just like to note that Tummy Gummy was voiced by Lorenzo Music, Ooh. so he would have had the same voice as Garfield. <laughs> just putting that out there. Which was a cartoon that I watched a whole bunch, but, uh, yeah. That's it. Good to know. Thank yeah. you, thank you for sharing with the class. You watched a lot of Garfield cartoons. Yeah. So basically you just followed Lorenzo music through his voice acting career. I guess I did. This, yeah. Garfield, the real Ghostbusters. And nothing else I could think of. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as we spoke of last week too, with the parallel between, uh, Tailspin being Disney Afternoon and, uh, we spoke of Freakazoid last week being one of the cartoons from, uh, the Warner Brothers, because Warner Brothers had a s- just slew of great cartoon series from the 90s. As Disney's Adventures of the Gummy Bears started their out Disney Afternoons, Warner Brothers' great slate of 90s cartoon series got started with this title that's, uh, began airing on September 14th, 1990. This is Tiny Toon Adventures. Yeah. And this is a show I definitely watched a lot of. Like, I think if I was on the side of either Warner Brothers or Disney cartoons, because of this show and because of Animaniacs, I was on the side of the Warner Brothers. I think. I totally understand. I remember watching Watching this basically every morning as well. Yeah. Like they were on just a different channel, but yeah, they were just so wacky and like, I guess you know, because when I was a kid, like we would always watch like, uh, Looney Tunes reruns because my dad liked Looney Tunes and it was the thing that you know we both enjoyed. And this was just sort of like, Oh, it's Looney Tunes, but for my generation. Oh, okay. Cool. So it's like, great. <laughs> so like, you know, on occasion you would see like classic Looney Tunes characters kind of slip in. Like every now and then you'd see Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck or whatever just kind of make an appearance because this is basically supposed to be like the next generation of like the kids of all these people going to university or Looniversity. Yes, Acme Looniversity. Yes, Acme Looniversity. Where they get their tune degree. Yes. 
<laughs> exactly. Don't tell me that theme song's not stuck in your no, head 30 it, years on. That theme song, the Animaniacs theme song, they're all in my head. Like, th- these are stupid things that are there forever, and they're never going to go away. So one portion of your brain is dedicated to a playlist of old TV theme songs and cartoon theme songs. Yeah. This is on there, and you can just dial it up anytime you want. Yeah. It's right there. Exactly. But Tiny Toon Adventures, I think, is one of the best cartoons of the 90s. Oh, absolutely. It was on. It was awesome. And this kind of ties in. This is a great cartoon to illustrate your point earlier of uh, having a cartoon where it's, you know, part moralizing, part, you know, teaching kids about how to be a good person and different life lessons, but also having elements of wacky and zaniness come in as well. I think Tiny Toons is one of those great balances between being a kid's cartoon, teaching kids some things, but also having just oddball humor and comedy as well. Yeah, because it trusted kids to get things. Like, not every kid is going to be so dumb that you need to literally spell out literally everything for them. Like, Give kids a little bit of credit. Like, they used to do it in the 90s. I think we turned out okay. Generally, like, a lot for of the us... Most are, part. For the most part. Like, for the most part, we learned how to read and would do math good and stuff. <laughs> you know? But, I don't know. Like, I, I always kind of liked when shows would... Like, you know, as a kid, like, if you're watching something that's, you know, funny... There would be jokes where you're like, I don't understand what that means, but then your parents are laughing. And then later on, as when you get older, you watch it and you're like, oh, I remember this. Oh, wow. Holy crap. So it's like, it's like a thing where it's like, it's okay to make stuff that's not appropriate for kids if it goes way over their head. And also, if it's a smart kid, they might get it and think it's funny and then just be that much more of a fan. Like, I think one of the uh, ways to illustrate that is one of the episodes was really just a send-up of Citizen Kane. Yes. Which, at the time, you have no hope in hell of a kid as knowing what the source of the parody is. No. It's just Montana Max. The setup is Montana Max. He just kind of has had something. He's been crying out one word, and everyone's trying to figure out what it means, and then the big joke reveal at the end is, no, he was saying acne, acne, because he's got acne. (laughs) He wasn't saying Acme. Everyone's trying to figure out, oh, what does Acme mean? <laughs> was it the name of a sled or something? No, he's got acne. He's yeah. got a pimple on his face. Yeah. But it's a Citizen Kane reference. None of us, when we were that age, would have seen Citizen Kane. And it was done in black and white. Yeah. And it was done as homage and parody of Citizen Kane, with framing, camera shots, everything. Yeah, none of us would have seen Citizen Kane at the time. No. Some of us still haven't seen it. I mean, I'd recommend it. It's not bad. It's, All a little, right. it's a little slow, but also having watched as much Simpsons as you probably have, you've probably seen about half a Citizen Kane. <laughs> not even joking. Thank you for that. But, yeah, it, it's actually very surprising when you watch it where you just see all the references and you're like, holy crap, they lifted like half this movie. Everyone's lifted half this movie. Wow. But anyways. Good to know. Even Tiny Toon Ventures. Yeah. For one episode. And the writers had fun with this episode. They were not stuck to a rigid framework of what an episode should be or just what it should cover. Like, and, anything seemed to be fair game. Yeah, and they would kind of play with format and, like, they would do, like, different... Like, there'd be long-form stories, but then there'd also just be little short sketches. 
And like, even within long form stories, they just have like weird cutaway sketches. Like I distinctly remember one episode where, uh, um, Plucky Duck was going with, uh, uh, Hampton's family off on some vacation or something. And then there was a scene where like their car odometer was turning over at some, like all the numbers were lining up or something. No, the, the odometer was rolling over back to zeros. Mm-hmm. And, like they wanted to catch it just perfectly. And like, they just kept missing it. And they kept going back and trying to redo it and stuff. And finally, like, you know, plucky losing it and something happening. And then him, I think getting run over by the car. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like a classic kind of Looney Tunes thing, which I don't know would be, I don't know if they want to show that in cartoons anymore. I don't know. But that used to be a thing that we found funny because we knew it was ridiculous and fake. You know, obviously no one's going to want to get run over by a car for real because we know we're not plucky duck. We know we can't just stop being flat on the road and just whatever. Anyway. Yeah. It was a cartoon world with cartoon physics. Yeah. Or another, because... I it, I think they had little comedy teams within the show as well, which is kind of interesting considering it was a cartoon. But I guess like different characters they built to have different chemistry and stuff. And Hampton Pig and Plucky Duck was one of the pairs. And I also remember when Plucky was trying to be a director of some commercial for for mango juice, and and he, it was like a whole thing where Plucky wanted Hampton to say, ah, mango juice. And then like this thing would fall on him and it was supposed to be some wacky thing happening. And he kept getting the line wrong. So like, by just kept getting more and more ridiculous. He's just like, ah, mango drink, ah, mango liquid refreshment. And then <laughs> eventually it was just like, Plucky did it himself. And like, he ends up getting like, just hammered with this thing and whatever. And, but it's like the perfect take and they put him in the role instead. So I don't know. It was always like, just weird little things like that were memorable scenes, I think. And it was, it was funny. And with a, just a wide cast of characters like that, you didn't have to always have cartoons revolving around Buster and Babs Bunny or Plucky and Hampton. Uh, you could have Elmira stories. Uh, you could have Dodo stories. Sometimes they actually went off to Wacky Land. Yeah. I mean, not often, but sometimes they would go off to Wacky Land and things of that nature. And, you know, this was the first time also Steven Spielberg was involved with, uh, I think, Amblin Television in a cartoon production. So there'd be a lot of Hollywood references and a lot of making references to Steven Spielberg as being their boss and whatnot. And sometimes they'd be on film sets or movie sets and whatnot. So, yeah, which really continued through into Animaniacs, which I think ultimately was my favorite one of all the whole bunch of the shows. Probably a bunch of us, a lot of us probably favorite Animaniacs because it was the best of the whole format. Like they, they kind of had it figured out from Tiny Toons Adventures and they just did that and ran with it for Animaniacs. But all the groundwork was laid by Tiny Toons Adventures. Absolutely. So it is worth your time to check out and watch. Uh, if you have children, uh, introduce the new generation to it. Uh, they will be better for it and they will turn out better because of it. So uh, just do that. Yeah. I regret nothing about that strong stance I've taken on Tiny Toons Adventures. So uh, one last cartoon that debuted a day after Tiny Toons on September 15th, 1990. Uh, this is one of those just very 90s cartoons. This is Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Yeah, so I think one day a while back, it occurred to me how big of a part of my childhood LeVar Burton actually was. 
because he was on this show, he was on Reading Rainbow, and he was on Star Trek The Next Generation. And I watched all three of those shows. I quite mean, a lot. Quite a lot. I mean, admittedly, Captain Planet... Well, I was going to say it didn't have a long run, but it had six seasons, which is a lot more than I thought it did. But, <laughs> yeah, it... Um, it's amazing how many different pro-environment stories you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that was, like, really the thing. I mean... There wasn't really much story-wise to the show. It was literally like every episode was sort of like a villain of the week. And it was always sort of, this guy's hurting the environment somehow. All the Planeteer kids who each had a ring that represented a different power, earth, wind, wire, water, fire, water, heart, for some reason. Then they would all bring their powers together and then they would summon Captain Planet to save the day. Yes, they'd summon a demon. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) A pro-Earth environmental demon. Yes. yes. Who also worked for maybe another demon in the form of Gaia, who was played by Whoopi Goldberg <laughs> for the first several seasons. And then Marvel. I thought you were going to say Ted Turner. <laughs> no, Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> yeah, Ted Turner. Because Ted Turner is one of yeah. the creators of Captain Planet and the Planeteers. If you don't know Ted Turner, Ted Turner is an old, like, uh, basically oil money southern tycoon who is just kind of... A little bit crazy, but got into uh, media and broadcast with his monies. He started the Turner Broadcast System, TBS, TNT, started CNN, and co-created Captain Planet and the Planeteers for some strange reason. Yeah, there's not the same clarity as to what inspired this show in the same way that Gummy Bears was clearly inspired by Michael Eisner seeing his kid eating a candy. But I have a feeling that maybe Ted Turner might have been a lot more hands-on with the creation because I get the impression that that's the type of person he was versus Michael Eisner, who was probably just like, oh, I saw this candy, make a show out of it. Whereas Ted Turner was probably like really in there like a dirty shirt, like, no, he's got to be a this kind of guy. He's got he's to he's have a crop top. got to have a crop top. <laughs> and he's got to... <laughs> yeah. Anyways, he's got to have blue skin and be really muscular. Okay. Blue and green, the colors of the environment, the colors of Earth, so we'll give him blue skin and green hair, and he'll have some abs, he'll have a six-pack, and very very clean-cut, very uh, rigid hair structure. And, I mean, the the episodes are all interchangeable. I mean, yeah, the the one villain I do recall is uh, Loot in Plunder, because the name is just ridiculous. Yeah, they... Actually, Duke Nukem was one of the names of the villains as well. Now, which, it wasn't the Duke Nukem. No, but I remember when the game came out, I was so confused. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, what? The bad guy from Captain Planet? One of the bad guys from Captain Planet got his own video game? No, it's a different guy. But yeah, Luton Plummer is great. Sly Sludge, not so great. Hoggish Greedly. Oh, wasn't he voiced by Ed Asner? He sure was. There was actually some kind of it was an impressive voice cast. Well, when you've got Ted Turner money behind it, you can get whoever you want. Yeah, you can get LeVar Burton, you can get Whoopi Goldberg and later Marco Kidder, <laughs> who replaced <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg as Gaia um, for some reason. But yeah. I would not think Marco Kidder is the voice of Gaia, but... Yeah, Rigger, voiced by John Ratzenberg. Verminous Scum, voiced by Jeff Goldblum. And, like, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Um I wonder if he even remembers doing that role. I highly doubt it. Luton Plunder was voiced by James Coburn. Cool. Uh, 
Yeah. Sly Sludge was Martin Sheen. Ooze was voiced by Cam Clark, who you might remember as uh, Leonardo from the Okay, the yeah. Girls. Uh, Zarm was voiced by Sting, <laughs> which is like, like bananas voice cast. Like, like, oh, okay. All these different people were involved in this show. Not a great show. No, it wasn't. It's mem- like the concept and idea of it is memorable, but are you able to just recall a specific episode that stands out after 30 years? No. And also, I had, I totally forgot about this, but I remember now after rereading the Wikipedia page, like, in balance with Captain Planet and the Planeteers, all of the polluters were able to summon Captain Pollution because they each had different... They had their own rings. Their, oh, their own opposing, uh, you know, power rings. Yeah. So Duke Nukem had the super radiation ring, which is the counterpart of the fire ring. Loot and Plunder had a deforestation ring, which is the counterpart of the earth ring. Sly Sludge had a smog ring, which was counterpart of wind. Verminous Scum had a toxics ring, which is the counterpart of water. And then Dr. Blight has a hate ring, which is the counterpart of heart. Oh, dear God. So when their powers combine... They power, they, some, some Captain Captain Pollution. Like, I recall this show having, like, an evil version of Captain Planet. I didn't realize, or didn't recall, he was named Captain Pollution. I didn't think it would be that on the nose, but this thing literally spelled it out for kids. Yeah. Every step along the way. Pollution is bad, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I do recall Captain Planet himself, uh, his design, like, he had the yellow globe across his chest. I don't recall one episode where he kind of got covered in mud and he he almost powered down. He didn't have as much strength because he yeah, had because mud across. The, 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 his chest got covered up and for some reason that like... It was a solar receptor. Yeah, that weakened him a lot. It's like, oh, so that's a solar panel that controls him? What is, is, is that blocking him from photosynthesis or something? Apparently it was. Because he, he looked kind of like a plant as well. A very muscular plant. It's what I look for in a plant. <laughs> is it muscular and beefy? Also, I forgot that all the Planeteers also had that same planet-type logo on all their shirts. Of course, they were all Planeteers. That's, I mean, once you once you join the guild, you get the shirt. And of course, they were, you know, a very precise, ethnically diverse, and racially mixed uh, a cast of characters as well. Yeah. Uh, everyone had representation. Yeah. Because that, that was a thing, too. Um and yeah, Captain Planet and the Planeteers, one of those oddities of, uh, um, of 90s cartoons. Yeah. So it stands out, I mean, for being just a very on the nose, you know, pro environment, anti pollution cartoon, not as good as Tiny Toon Adventures, which, as I've said, I, and I think we both agree on, one of the best cartoons of the 90s. Oh yeah, absolutely. It still holds up. And, to the point uh, we raised last week and are still waiting for people to offer it to us. If you know a way for us to uh, legally watch and stream the old Warner Brothers uh, cartoon series, like Animaniacs, Tiny Toon Adventures, Freakazoid, things of that nature, let us know. In, uh, email us info at thearcadeshow.com or uh, you can hit us up through social media. We are on Twitter at The Arcade Show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Arcade Show. We want to uh, enjoy these old Warner Brothers cartoons once again. We know you can get Disney's Adventures of the Gummy Bears on Disney+. Plus. You can literally get everything old on Disney+. Plus. 
You could probably even watch the old Mighty Ducks cartoon, which, yes, that was a cartoon series from the late 90s. It was bad. Yep. It was, it was, it was the worst of the bunch. Yeah, that's where it really just went downhill. But we won't talk about that. But, no. uh, and of course, before that, we started talking about the Care Bears, which exists in different forms. I'm sure you can see old clips on, uh, YouTube and whatnot. You might even still have, you know, an old VHS kicking around your house somewhere or something. True. So, uh, old cartoons, uh, memorable, noteworthy cartoons. We spent a lot of time talking about them. Yeah. More than we anticipated. And so we, uh, went a bit longer than planned for this week, but, uh, we think it was all worth it and hope you enjoyed it all. And of course, most importantly, hope you join us again next week. So until then, good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.